Hello, and welcome to The Hungry Historian, a history podcast with a culinary twist. As always, I am Chef Money, and on today's episode, we will attempt to uncover what led to one of the great mysteries to ever happen within our country. Not only that, but I will be providing you with both the ingredients and directions to make something that can be served as a standalone meal, an addition to a meal that you're already making, or just a great pick-me-up for the dreaded hangover. Our topic today is Sir John Franklin's Lost Arctic Expedition. And in honor of it, we will be making up a batch of something that I like to call Beachy Island Bone Broth. Now, before we dive into the subject matter, there are two things we need to do. First, I would like to acknowledge our source material for this episode, Frozen in Time by Owen Beatty. This is one of the best history books I have ever read. It isn't too long, it isn't too boring, and it's very entertaining the entire way through. Up next, I need to give you a list of some ingredients that we're going to be using for today. What you're going to need is a big-ass pot, four pounds of bones, either chicken or beef, a quarter cup of apple cider vinegar, two stalks of celery, roughly chopped, and that's just a way of saying that you can cut it into big pieces, three carrots, roughly chopped, including the top and the peelings, two yellow onions, quartered, also include the peelings, one head of garlic, also quartered, also including the garlic skins. You're going to need one tablespoon of whole black peppercorns, a quarter cup of sea salt, divided, a sprig of fresh thyme, one stem of fresh sage leaves, one sprig of fresh rosemary, one cup of fresh parsley, or you can buy a pack of fresh poultry spices. They're cheaper, and you don't have a bunch of fresh herbs that you really have to worry about going bad. You'll also need two bay leaves, two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, and upwards of 10 liters of water. Now, the reason I say upwards, and I don't give you an exact amount, is because depending on the size of the pot and how long you cook this for, you could be adding more water than the other person. So 10 liters, give or take, is a good amount to speculate that you'll need. And now on to the main course. The Canadian Arctic is one of the most desolate and foreboding places on the entire planet. Yet for centuries, European explorers were drawn to her frigid waters in the search for one of history's most sought-after items the Holy Grail. Nah, I'm just kidding. They were looking for the Northwest Passage, but for those of them who came searching for it, it was just as valuable as the Grail. Arctic and polar exploration as a whole was at an all-time high during the Victorian era. To them, the Arctic was a potential other world, a snow queen's realm that shone with magical lights in the sky, had glittering ice palaces, and was inhabited by mythical creatures. I mean, just look at a narwhal, for instance. For the adventurers, the Arctic was a place where a hero might defy the odds, suffer outrageously, and pit his larger-than-usual soul against overwhelming forces. That is why they came. Born in 1786, John Franklin was the ninth of twelve children. His father had hoped for him to opt for a career in the church or head into business, but young Johnny was drawn to the sea. Even though his father had wanted a different career path for his son, he did not prevent him from chasing his dreams, going as far as letting his then 12-year-old son take a trial voyage on a merchant sailing ship. In March of 1800, his father was the one who secured him his first appointment in the Royal Navy. During his time in the Royal Navy, 
John Franklin would take part in both the Napoleonic Wars and the War of 1812. And similar to a previous subject of ours, Isaac Brock, he was present at the Battle of Copenhagen. Franklin also saw action in one of the most famous naval battles of all time, the Battle of Trafalgar. It took 18 years of service, but in 1818, Franklin was given command of his own ship, the HMS Trent, which of course stood for Try Real Exploring Next Time. <laughs> That's just a shout out for all of uh, the Trent U alum out there. The following year, Franklin's career as an explorer began to take shape when he was selected to lead an overland expedition to chart the northern coast of Canada, eastwards from the mouth of the Coppermine River. The Coppermine Expedition, as history has come to call it, was an absolute shitshow. Not only did the clumsy Franklin fall into the river and nearly get swept away, but between 1819 and 1821, 11 of his 21 men died. Now, the majority of them succumbed to starvation, but according to reports, there were also at least one murder and reports of cannibalism. The conditions were so grave and the food so scarce that the men were forced to eat lichen that grew on the rocks. Lichen is basically slime. The men were eating slime. But the real delicacy they had was eating the leather of their boots. This would earn Franklin his lifelong nickname, the man who ate his boots. Now, things seemed to be trending up for Johnny Franks when he returned to England. He got married to a poet named Eleanor in 1823, and they welcomed a daughter that they also named Eleanor the following year. However, then the bad luck returned. His wife died of tuberculosis in 1825, and John decided, you know what, I'm going to head back to the Arctic because I had such a blast last time I was there. This time, he went as a member of the Mackenzie River Expedition. The two-year expedition would be an ambitious one, with three teams starting out from three different points to map as much of the northern coastline as they could between the mouths of the Mackenzie and Coppermine Rivers and the Bering Strait. Now, being better equipped and having better plans, this expedition would actually prove to be a success, with over 1,000 kilometers of unexplored coastlines being mapped. Here's a little fun fact. Franklin's diary from this time describes his men playing hockey on the ice of the Great Bear Lake. Today, Deline, which is the modern-day site of Fort Franklin, thus considers itself to be the birthplace of hockey. Now, the period between his return to England in 1827 and his departure to the Arctic for a third time in 1845 would probably be the best in Franklin's life. He got remarried, he got knighted, he got a bunch of fancy titles bestowed upon him, and for almost seven years, he was the Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, which is modern-day Tasmania. I mean, just Van Diemen's Land just sounds old-timey as hell. I just love, love saying it. And that's saying something because, I mean, Tasmania is a pretty badass name in itself. Now, in Tasmania this day, Franklin's likeness still adorns statues, his name is still Grace's Rivers, and was also the name of a controversial dam project. Now, these are quite the accolades for someone who adopted, and by adopted, I mean stole, the infant daughter of an Aboriginal leader. They renamed her Methina, raised her alongside their own daughter, and then unceremoniously dumped her into an orphanage at the age of nine when they returned to England. But don't worry, Methina would wind up returning to her original village, 
where she would wind up dying at the age of 18, having drowned in a puddle. But yeah, you know, at least Franklin has that whole river and controversial dam project to look back on. Now, since his last trip to the Arctic, only an approximate 500 kilometers of the coastline remained uncharted. In 1845, the Admiralty, those are the people who are in charge of the Royal Navy, or would be until 1964, they decide to order up a well-equipped expedition to the Arctic, and they offer the command to another renowned polar explorer, Sir James Clark Ross, who declines. So, at the age of 59, the aging and rather plump-looking Franklin is given the command. Now, if you want to get a kind of look for what Franklin looks like, I always picture him as Professor Horace Slughorn from the Harry Potter universe, or if there was a biopic of him, it would have been amazing to have the late great Bob Hoskins portray John Franklin. For the expedition, Franklin is given two Royal Navy ships that have been retrofitted from being bomb ships, which means that they were equipped with cannon and mortars, and they've been turned into polar exploration vessels. Their names are the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. Uh, here's another little fun fact. The HMS Terror took part in the bombing of Fort McHenry during the War of 1812. Uh, taking refuge inside the fort is a man named Francis Scott Key, and this bombardment will inspire him to pen the lyrics to a little ditty called the Star-Spangled Banner. Now, Terror and the Erebus are both outfitted with the most recent innovations and inventions of the time. They have two steam engines from the London Greenwich Railway. This allows the ships to do four knots, or seven kilometers an hour, under their own power. They have a combination steam-based heating and distillation system. This provides comfort for the crew and clean water for the boilers. They have a mechanism that allows their, their iron rudder and propeller to be drawn into an iron well to protect it from any possible damage from sea ice. They have a ship's library containing over a thousand books, and most importantly, and notably, they have three years of tinned provisions and preserved food supplies. The thought at this time being not only that this method of food storage allowed for longer expeditions, but they are believed to contain antiscorbutic properties meaning that they'll help prevent scurvy, a known scourge of the sailor, which has since been scientifically debunked, but we'll circle back to this whole tinned food deal a little later on. Now, Franklin is the overall commander of the expedition, and he has selected Captain Francis Crozier, a veteran of the Antarctic expeditions, to be his executive officer and commander of the HMS Terror, which was the same ship that Crozier had previously commanded in the Antarctic. Joining them would be a man named James Fitzjames, who was a commander and also would be the commander of HMS Erebus. The rest of the crew for the expedition would be assigned by the Admiralty. Having received official instructions from the Admiralty on May the 7th, the expedition leaves Greenheith, England on the 19th of May, 1845, with a crew of 24 officers and 110 men. They make a brief stop at Aberdeen, Scotland, and in the Orkney Islands to pick up further supplies. From there, they travel to Whitefish Bay on Disco Island in Greenland, accompanied by HMS Rattler and a transport ship, the Barreto Jr. Why is the name Whitefish Bay synonymous with Canadian-related shipping disasters? First this one, 
Then the Edmund Fitzgerald, 130-something years later, near Whitefish Bay on Lake Superior. How about this for some luck? Five men would be transferred from the expedition to these accompanying ships to be sent home because they fell ill, leaving 129 men to sail on. This is like the complete opposite of a Ralph Cox moment. Cox was the last man cut from the United States men's Olympic hockey team that would not only defeat the Russians in the Miracle on Ice, but would later win the gold medal at the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. Anyway, rambling aside, the last known Europeans to see the expedition was a whaling ship called, and I shit you not, the Prince of Wales, when it encountered Erebus and the Terror moored off of an iceberg in Lancaster Sound on July the 26th, 1845. So what happened? Why is this known as the Lost Expedition? It is believed that the men spent the winter of 1845-46 on Beachy Island. See, that's where the name for the bone broth comes from. From there, they sailed down the coast of King William Island until the ships became trapped in the ice in September 1846, never to sail again. Now, after hearing no word for two years, and despite constant encouragement from Franklin's wife, Lady Jane, the Admiralty would wait for another year before sending out any search parties. Now, their logic being that even if they got locked in the ice, they had enough tinned provisions to last three years. Not to mention whatever they could hunt, scrounge, or possibly trade with the local Inuit community. Now, with the Admiralty offering a £20,000 reward, over 25 search and rescue expeditions would head out toward the Arctic over the years, with the first one setting out in 1848. Lady Jane herself would not only implore the Admiralty to send out numerous search parties, but she would actually finance seven expeditions on her own dime, as well as contributing to numerous others. Of those expeditions that set out, only six of them made discoveries of any real significance. The first relics from the expedition were found in 1850 on Beachy Island, including the graves of three of the crew. In 1854, the Scottish explorer John Ray discovered the true and most likely real fate of the Franklin party from Inuit on the Boothia Peninsula. They told Ray that both ships had indeed become icebound, and that the men had tried to reach safety on foot, but succumbed to the cold and starvation, some even resorting to cannibalism. Ray reports this back to the Admiralty, but it is ultimately leaked to the press, and needless to say, Victorian-era England wasn't quite ready for the horrors of cannibalism. And members of society, led by Lady Jane herself, who was looking to protect and save her husband's legacy from these horrific rumors, they basically accuse Ray of straight-up lying. Now, another notable search party was the McClintock Party in 1859. They discovered a rowboat of Franklin's that had been placed on a sledge. In it, they found a number of personal possessions along with two skeletons. Now, this haphazard grave became known as the Boat Place and became a landmark of sorts for future expeditions, including the 1879 Schwatka one. The Boat Place wasn't McClintock's only major discovery. On King William Island at a place named Lady Jane Bay, members of the team found a letter under a stone cairn. On it were two messages, one written by Commander Gore in 1846 
and the other by Crozier in 1848. The one in 1846 says, HM ships Erebus and Terror wintered in the ice. It then gives a list of coordinates. It says, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition, all well. Now, handwritten around the margin of this original letter was the following. 25th April, 1848. HMS ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April 5th, having, since, having been beset since 12th September, 1846. The officers and crews consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain Fro Crozier landed here. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. Signed, Francis Crozier, Captain and Senior Officer. It then tells that the men plan to start towards the Baxfish River the following day. These would prove to be the very final communications of the Franklin expedition. Now, as the years went on, the story of Franklin's lost expedition never strayed far from the public mind and would even pop back up in popularity with renewed interest following the announcement of the latest expedition or any mention of the party itself. In Canada, it became part of our myth and lore, maybe even more so than it is in Britain. Between 1981 and 86, Owen Beatty, the man who wrote the book that I used for this episode, whom is a professor of anthropology from the University of Alberta at Edmonton, began the 1845-48 Franklin Expedition Anthropology Project. They traveled to King William Island with the goal of exploring the island's west coast to find any artifacts or skeletal remains. From there, they would use modern forensics to establish the identity, whether it's European or Inuit, of the remains and a cause of death. Now, even though they were disappointed in the amount of remains they discover, which kind of amusing, seeing like, hey, we didn't find enough dead bodies, but they did find enough to start their forensic investigation. Not only did it confirm that they belonged to Europeans, but they also showed evidence of pockmarking that is consistent with someone that had been affected by scurvy. Further testing would reveal something even more surprising. Incredibly high traces of lead present in their bones, almost 200 times higher than what the average person should have. But where did the lead come from? You remember those tin provisions that the Admiralty was so proud of? Well, it turns out that during the manufacturing process, the solder, which was used to seal the lids and tins, contained extremely high amounts of lead, which eventually leached into the food and subsequently into whatever consumed it. Furthermore, Another design flaw in the tin itself, a small gap on the lid flange led to possible spoilage and botulism. This would have resulted in bulging cans, something that was discovered and mentioned by multiple of the search parties that had gone out over the years, as well as the local Inuit community who spoke of members falling ill and dying after eating the contents. Now, the real villain in this story well, besides nature, lead, scurvy, 19th century living conditions, and so on, was a man named Stephen Goldner. He's the dude who supplied the Royal Navy with their tinned provisions. Now, his company got the order for the provisions on April 1st, 1845. And unless he was trying to perform maybe the first April Fool's gag of all time, he really dropped the ball. Because by May the 5th, the day which Franklin had received his orders... Goldner had only completed one-tenth 
of his own. He promised that by the 12th, all meat would be completed and the soups would follow on the 15th. But are you telling me that there isn't a legit chance that in an already non-existent Victorian era health code, that maybe, maybe Goldner just bent it a little bit more to complete an 8,000 tin order and just maybe, maybe, maybe some food that was closer to spoilage was included? Now, I know it seems like speculation, but Goldner will be accused of producing inferior quality provisions for another polar expedition that went to the Antarctic. So much so that it is on report that one of the ship's officers reported that the food was a disgrace to the contractor. And all this is without even mentioning the piles of discarded tins and ominous cairns built featuring bulging cans, all of which was done by men who were allegedly starving to death. Now, the Canadian anthropology team took things a step further on their second trip when they decided to exhume the graves of the three men who were buried on Beachy Island in order to obtain some tissue samples. These samples, they hoped, would identify if the lead content came from a prolonged exposure. Remember, these men had lived during Victorian times. Everything had lead in it. The paint had lead in it. Candlesticks had lead in it. Toys had lead in it. Or if it had come from exposure over a limited time. Now, gaining permission from both the British government as well as remaining family members of the men, the team dug up John Torrington, who was a lead stoker, and upon opening his casket, they are astonished to find that Torrington's remains were almost perfectly preserved. I mean, probably preserved better than their food was anyway. Hair, nail, and tissue samples taken from Torrington, and later from the other two men, John Hartnell and William Brain, would show that all three of them had been exposed to a prolonged exposure of lead over a limited time. The lead poisoning might not have been what killed them. Pneumonia was in fact Torrington's official cause of death, but it would have caused them to suffer from both mental and physical ailments, most notably those that share very similar characteristics with scurvy, which is why None of the per their precautions against scurvy would have helped them, and possibly why the ship's doctor, Henry Goodsir, had done a very basic autopsy on one of the men to determine exactly what was causing the sickness that they could not find a cure for. The scientific conclusions of the near-decade-long Canadian anthropological investigation stated that the majority of the expedition had died from either the cold, starvation, pneumonia, or tuberculosis, but all of those had been made worse by the effects of lead poisoning. Now, it is worth noting that scientists and historians are still split on just how much impact the lead poisoning had on the men and just how they had come into contact with so much, stating that the amount from the tin cans would not be enough to give the exposure numbers that the remains had shown. Some point to the water distillation system as a more likely culprit for lead exposure. Between 1992 and 2014, more anthropological expeditions would set out for the Arctic in the hopes of finding the ships, finding more remains of the men, or finding more answers of any kind. In 2010, one of the ships that had searched for the Franklin and had become icebound itself, HMS Endeavour, was discovered in Mercy Bay on Banks Island. Four years later, a larger discovery would be announced. HMS Erebus had been discovered. She still lies in 11 meters of water in Queen Maud's Gulf off the coast of O'Reilly Island. 
Following the announcement of HMS Erebus, two years later, HMS Terror would be discovered. She still lies in 24 meters of water in Terror Bay, south of King William Island. The wreck of the Terror is said to be near pristine, while the Erebus has significantly deteriorated. As far as those rumors and reports of cannibalism went, oh, they 100% happened. And no, it's not because I saw it happen on AMC's amazing miniseries, The Terror, which was based on the Dan Simmons book of the same name. Now, during one of the anthropological digs in the early 90s, bones that were discovered had shown signs of defleshing, or someone had used a knife to remove skin from a bone. Well, 20 years after that, the International Journal of Osteoarchaeology reported that not only had the bones been defleshed, but they also showed signs of pot polishing and breakage. Pot polishing just being a fun way of describing why the ends of some bones were so smooth. It came from the continual rubbing against the inside of a pot as the starving men would attempt to make a broth out of their former crewmates' bones. The breakage aspect would come when the man was so desperate and was trying to get at whatever marrow remained inside the bones of said former crewmate. And that brings us back to today's recipe. I've already given you a list of the ingredients that you'll need for our Beachy Island bone broth. Now let's go over the steps you'll need to take in order to make it. Preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. You're going to spread your bones out on a baking sheet and season them with one tablespoon of salt and drizzle your apple cider vinegar over them. Then pop them in the oven and roast them for 20 minutes. After that, you're going to heat up your big ass pot on medium high heat. Add your olive oil, allow it to heat up, before adding your vegetables, garlic, and one and a half tablespoons of salt. When the bones are done, remove them from the oven and place them in the pot along with the vegetables. Next, you're going to add your herbs, the peppercorns, the bay leaves, and the remaining salt. Next comes the water. Now I use distilled water and I use approximately between eight and 10 liters of it, as I'd mentioned before. Now the reason for this is because I'm cooking mine for 24 hours and I'm using a larger pot. Those two factors will determine how much water you are going to need. Once you add your water, you're gonna bring it to a boil and then turn it down to a simmer for between eight and 24 hours. Now you can transfer to a slow cooker and cook it on low setting if you don't want to deal with having to add water on a continued basis. Once your broth has cooked for your determined time, you're going to strain it until you're left with just the liquid. I usually allow it to pass through a large colander first to remove all the larger pieces and then take the liquid and put it through a fine mesh sieve. You're going to bottle it while it's hot Allow it to cool on your counter before storing it in a fridge, which will keep it good for about a week, or you can put it in a freezer and it should last about six months. Now, this broth is great for soups. It's great as an addition to stews and a great base for sauces. And as I mentioned, it can be drank on its own. You just got to heat it up, add a little salt or even some olive oil, and it's a great cure-all for what ails you. Now, before I sign off on today's episode, uh, I just want to thank everybody who's listened, uh, who's given me some great feedback, and uh, I just want to literally say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, and uh, I really hope you enjoy what is to come. I also want to say that even though the first couple episodes of this might seem very Canadian history heavy, 
we will be, and by we I mean I, will be focusing on every aspect of history. There's no real flow or list, so you'll just have to tune in on a weekly basis, and uh, I hope you like what you hear. As always, I'm Chef Money. Thank you for coming into cooking with me, and we'll see you soon. Cheers.